I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Last week we did Luke chapter 2, 1 through 21, talking about the incarnation. And now here today we are going to be doing Luke 2, 21 through 40, focusing on his dedication. And so as you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke chapter 2. And this morning I'll be reading verses 21 through 39. So 21 through 39 of Luke chapter 2 as we see Jesus being dedicated. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you guys feel about pumpkin pie? (laughs) I came across this article titled, uh, Boy Catches the Holy Spirit After Trying Pumpkin Pie. For the first time. This is an article carried by Newsweek. A toddler got his first taste of this sweet treat this year celebrating Thanksgiving. So the mom named Tia Dunham shared in her clip on uh, TikTok 
of uh, her, the reaction of her two-year-old son having pumpkin pie for the first time. And she captioned it, when you try pumpkin pie for the first time. The short clip shows the boy in his high chair, and then you see a hand feed him a spoonful of this tasty goodness, pumpkin pie, and you see his re- reaction. At first, uh, initially, he, he furrows his brow, you know, like when you get like this, real serious, he furrows his brow. And then as the sweet mixture sweeps its way across his taste buds, a smile spreads across his face, and his eyes kind of roll back into his head. Uh, and then he balls up his hands like this, and he starts, you know, shaking uh, as he savors the pie. And uh, she said, the, the mom said, my boy ain't know what to do. Uh, she told Newsweek, we bought, it, we bought the pumpkin pie from our local grocery store, and yes, he definitely has had more after the video. He's never reacted to food that way before. Uh, it's had over 5 million views with plenty of comments. Some of the comments were, oh my goodness, he's glitching. Uh, you all just hit his reset button. Uh, bro started to power up. Uh, he done caught the Holy Ghost, was another one. Uh, his taste buds were just awakened. Uh, he showed the definition of soul food. Uh, this is the moment he gained consciousness. The Holy Ghost in that kid. And then the last one was Holy Spirit activate. Um, while these were good reactions, some people had different reactions. Uh, they were, it pro- actually prompted his, they were, some people were worried. And so it prompted his mom to respond and say, please stop messaging me and commenting about your seizure concerns. <laughs> He's fine, is what she said. Reactions. Uh, we can all have these kind of reactions, whether it's, a, you know, something like a TikTok video or maybe we're like this kid having pumpkin pie for the first time. We have good reactions. We can have bad reactions to the things that come at us in life. But in this passage this morning, we see an incredible reaction to a baby named Jesus. And it wasn't because he was eating pumpkin pie for the first time. As this passage opens up in verse 21, last week we talked about Jesus' incarnation. But here we are in verse 21, where he's getting circumcised on the eighth day. And this circumcision was not just a simple routine medical procedure, something we're used to in the States in this 21st century, but rather it was something more than this. Jesus, as an Israelite boy, was to be circumcised eight days after birth. And this came about because Jesus, uh, or I'm sorry, because God made a covenant with his people in Genesis 17. It was a covenant that God made with Abraham, and he gave him this sign of circumcision. And it wasn't simply a medical procedure, but it was a sign and a seal. A sign and a seal of God's covenant with his people. The sign of circumcision was a sign of the covenant that marked God's people separate, and that basically said, you are mine. It was a sign and a seal of the removal of sin, of the rolling away of the reproach, so to speak, of cutting sin off, as it were. But it wasn't just physical. It wasn't meant to be just something physical. It was meant to point to something spiritual, that this actually needed to take place in their lives to remove the reproach, to remove the sin, to follow the Lord. That's why, for example, in Jeremiah 4.4, we read in the Old Testament, they were supposed to circumcise their hearts. It was a physical sign, but it had spiritual meaning. But yet here's Jesus getting circumcised. 
And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know the scriptures say Jesus was sinless and he was perfect. So why was he being circumcised like this for something like this? Why did he need this? Well, it's because Jesus was coming into the world to do something. He was coming into the world in order to save his people from their sins by identifying with them. By coming and taking on a body, becoming like us, flesh and blood. But also by coming and he would take on the sins of his people so that we could be forgiven. You see, Jesus was called the last Adam or the second Adam, as it were. If you remember the first Adam, the first Adam failed in keeping the law, but Jesus was going to live a sinless, perfect life and keep the law perfectly. He would succeed where Adam had failed. And so Jesus came, and he came to bear that curse of not keeping the law, dying as if he had not kept it himself. But as we see in the scriptures that he actually was faithful, and he does keep the law perfectly. We see that in Galatians 3.13. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law to get rid of it, but rather he came to fulfill it. We see that in Matthew 5.17. And so Jesus, he's circumcised. He receives this covenant sign, this covenant seal, setting him apart to the Lord. But we have some other things going on in this passage of this dedication that's taking place. You'll notice that there's purification in verse 22. And this was something that was based on uh, the law, Leviticus 12, 1 through 4. And it talked about how purification was needed after 40 days. And so Mary would have been considered ceremonially impure. She couldn't go to the sanctuary and worship. And so sacrifice had to be offered. And so she offers a sacrifice that's needed for purification. And then she presents Jesus to be set apart, to be set apart as holy to the Lord. What's going on here? What's taking place? Well, Jesus was the firstborn, their firstborn son. And for them, uh, all firstborn Israelite males were to be dedicated to the Lord. What is this about? Well, this had to do with a time in the past in the ancient Near East when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And some of you may know this story where Israel was in Egypt in slavery, and that night, the night of their deliverance from slavery, finally and fully, if you remember that, the firstborn Egyptians were slain. They were slain because they didn't have the blood on the doorposts, just like Israel had, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, so that when the angel of death came through, if you had the blood on the doorposts, then the angel of death would not kill the firstborn in that household. But what happened was for the Egyptians, who had continued to not let Israel go, this was the final, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, which finally released God's people from Egyptian slavery. On that night, the Egyptian firstborn were slain. But because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the Israelite families were passed over, and they received life. No suffering. And after this, the Lord commanded Moses in Exodus 13, he said, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so they were to be devoted to him, not in death, not in taking their lives, 
like some of the other religions of that time where they, they would sacrifice their children. God didn't say that. They were to be devoted to him in terms of service to him. Actually, later on, God takes the whole tribe of Levi and he dedicates them. They're dedicated in lifelong service at the tabernacle and the temple. He even says it's as an offering. He says this in Numbers 3. The tribe of Levi would be the sacrifice, so to speak, but not in taking their lives, but in dedication of their service to the Lord. It was a picture. See, Jesus, like all firstborn Israelite males, he was to be set apart to the Lord through presentation, but also there was a redemption price that would be paid for him as well. You see that also in Numbers 3. But the point of this was it was to remind Israel. It was to remind Israel that God had redeemed the lives of the firstborn through the blood of the Lamb. And here's Jesus being taken through these steps, following the law as it was required. He's doing this as if he needed redemption, as if he himself was tainted with sin, but yet he's sinless and perfect. Why is this? Why is he going through these steps? Well, it's because he would stand in our place. Like those lambs in Egypt, he would take on our sins and he would suffer punishment that we deserved. He would be that perfect sacrifice that would atone for the sins of his people. That's why he's referred to in the New Testament as the Lamb of God. You remember John the Baptist says, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Jesus came into the world and he was born under the law. Galatians 4, 4. He came and he lived underneath it like all of his creation. Every man, woman, and child that's ever been born on this planet. We've been born under this law. Well, he came and he lived underneath it. And he did this in order to redeem those, us, who were under the law. You see, he voluntarily obligated himself to keep the law perfectly. And he then bore the law's penalty for breaking it, as if he had broken it, when really we were the ones that broke it. And he did this in order to satisfy the demands of perfect obedience, because that's the standard. The standard is perfection. And we can't attain that. Yet Jesus had no guilt, but he took on the sins of his people, facing the punishment that you and I deserve for breaking the law. And he did this so we could be forgiven and have life everlasting. This indeed was a dedication like no other. Jesus, who was and is perfect, he came under the law to uphold it, to keep it perfectly, so his people could have life through faith in him. He was dedicated, but then he lived a life dedicated to God completely and perfectly for our salvation. You could say in a sense that he paid the penalty for our lack of dedication. And so he dedicated himself to God perfectly so you and I could have life everlasting through faith in him. You know, when you think of the law, it's one thing to legislate law. Actually, it's an easy thing to legislate law, right? It's an easy thing to create it. We can come up with all kinds of rules and laws that we want maybe others to follow. You know, that's the easy part. But the hard part is to live underneath it and to live underneath it perfectly. And here's a question. How good are you at living perfectly underneath your worldview? 
Whether you are a Christian and call yourself a follower of Jesus, or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't believe in this Jesus. Whatever your worldview is, how consistent are you with living underneath that worldview 100% of the time? Every second of the day, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Probably doesn't take long for you to realize that even you under your own, whatever worldview that may be, you do not live perfectly. You do not keep it. You see, all the scriptures say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. And so when we realize we don't keep it perfectly, what do we do with that? Try harder? Do we just hope that living a good life, things work out in the end? Do we just ignore? Do we hope that what we do is good enough? Well, the standard is perfection. The standard is perfection, and there's only one that lived that out. I think we have a hard time, I have a hard time fathoming, just imagining Jesus living underneath God's perfect law every moment of every day. Not just in his actions, not just in the words that came out, but his thoughts. Every second, perfection. And he did that for a long period of time. Think about that. He did that. He was that dedicated to our salvation that he did that every second of every day so that we could have life. And we didn't even love him or care about him. And here he was doing this for us, being dedicated to save us. We, we see a lot about Jesus in this passage, but I don't want us to miss that this was a total triune effort, a total Trinitarian effort. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. You also see the Holy Spirit come on the scene in this passage, specifically with Simeon. Did you notice that? You notice the Holy Spirit and how he's working, how he's moving to accomplish Jesus' salvific mission. He's there in power. Like, look at what takes place. The Holy Spirit is upon Simeon, verse 25. The Holy Spirit uh, revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Christ, verse 26. The Holy Spirit guides Simeon into the temple, verse 27. And what we see here is the triune God is sovereign over all of these things. Nothing is left to chance by any means, but something has been ordained and is being orchestrated and moved forward in power as these things are taking place. Simeon, as we see him, he's a man that would have been considered basically a layman in the church, not a clergyman, uh, to use our language. Uh, but he was righteous, he was devout. And he was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. But yet, these were dark times they were living in. These were dark times. Israel was under the, the rule of Rome. And then on top of that, you had an Israelite king at the time, King Herod. And what we know of him from the Gospels is that he tried to kill Jesus. And he was actually willing to commit infanticide in order to find and kill Jesus in order to accomplish his goal. Religiously, Israel was full of legalism. We see that in the Gospels with the Pharisees. But it was also full of license. There was all kinds of idolatrous worship going on. There had been silence from the prophets. We estimate 400 years between Malachi and the book of Matthew. These were dark times. But yet, you'll notice in this passage, there were people waiting 
and expecting. They're waiting for the redemption of Israel. Verse 38. Well, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he would see the Christ. And Simeon comes in, guided by the Spirit, into the temple, verse 27. At the exact time, Mary and Joseph come in with Jesus. And Simeon's heart was basically supercharged with thanksgiving. Supercharged with thanksgiving and praise for what God had done. And so he takes Jesus in his arms. I don't know if he asked for permission first, but he clearly takes Jesus in his arms and he's overcome. And he, and he blesses the Lord for what he has done. And he exalts in the Lord. In verse 29 and 30, he's, he's pointing out how God has kept his promise. He said the Savior would come, and here he is. He kept his promise to not only Simeon, but he kept his promise to God's people, Jew and Gentile. And Simeon is literally looking salvation in the eyes. That's a hard thing to fathom. Simeon is holding in his arms the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, in his arms, And in some sense, that blows your mind because Simeon is finite. And here he is holding the infinite God in his arms. And more than that, that the infinite God would submit and lower himself to allow himself to be placed in his arms. That's dedication. That is devotion. All so that his creation could be redeemed. The creator placed himself in the arms of his creation, being fully dedicated, devoted, so you and I could have life through faith in him. That is amazing. And it kind of blows your mind. Well, it definitely blew Simeon's mind because he's he's so excited. He's so overwhelmed. It's kind of like um, he's celebrating Even though the game has just started, it's like he's celebrating that his team has already won. That's how excited he is. The Messiah is here, and Simeon praises the Lord for salvation, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, for the whole world. You'll notice how he is a light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. That's the whole world, Jew and Gentile. Jesus is that light because we're in spiritual darkness. And only he could rescue us from that. But he's also glory because of his presence among his people. As an Israelite, as you would hear this, you would think the glory, yes, the glory of the Lord that they saw in the temple when God was present in the temple. The glory of the Lord where where the Lord would go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It would conjure up these mental images. Christ was that glory. Christ was that light of the world, and here he was. Well, it's easy to get distracted with Simeon. We can't forget that Mary and Joseph are also standing there during this whole time, taking all this in. And they're observing and they're hearing all this, and their response is to marvel at what Simeon has said. To marvel that he's not just the Savior for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for the whole world. What you're holding in your arms is a Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. And so Simeon, he blesses Mary and Joseph in verse 34, and then he speaks to Mary about the fall and the rise of many. 
And this would have been jolting to hear, especially in this occasion. You're, you're marveling at what's being said, but then something very sobering is told to you about how it'll pierce your own heart, your own soul. This would have been jolting. But what Simeon was pointing out is that a person's response to Jesus would be one of life and death. You couldn't just take him or leave him. It's a, it's a response of life and death. And as we, would, we will see in the Gospels, because we're going to go there next after January into Mark, we're going to see in the Gospels how some accept him and some reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. And the point here that's being made is that you cannot be neutral with Jesus. Jesus doesn't let you squirm out of it. You can't, you can't talk your way out of it. You can't politic your way out of it because what he says is just so provocative that you can't just say, oh, he's a, he's a good guy or, oh, okay, that's, that's okay. He doesn't leave you with that because what he says, he makes you take a stand on what he says. And, 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 and even Simeon says here that what Jesus would do would actually reveal the hearts of people. Because you can't just be neutral on it. Because he was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God in the flesh. You can't just sit there and go, okay, that sounds good. He doesn't leave it. It reminds me of this quote, and I know many of you have read this book, Mere Christianity, and C.S. Lewis says this, but it's appropriate here. And I just want to read a little excerpt of it from, from Mere Christianity. But C.S. Lewis says this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Think about the responses we have seen so far. Simeon, blessing and praising God. Mary and Joseph, marveling, but also receiving some sobering words. Mary's own soul would eventually be uh, pierced through with Jesus' persecution and death. But it wouldn't end there, right? We know the rest of the story wouldn't end there because he would rise from the grave and there would be a glorious future. This passage ends by shifting to another person, our last person, Anna, who's a prophetess. Uh, she's a woman who knew loss. She knew the loss of her husband. She was a woman who had seen a lot of life and she had lived faithfully for the Lord. She was a woman of worship, a woman of fasting, a woman of prayer. And this had been forged over years of living a dedicated life for the Lord. And she too comes into the temple at the same time. Can't imagine what this scene was like. It's probably pretty exciting. And gathering a crowd maybe. 
But she comes into the table at the same time as Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and Simeon. And her response is to give thanks to God and then to evangelize. She can't help it. She gives thanks and she evangelizes. She proclaims and spreads the good news that everyone had been waiting for, that your Redeemer is here. The one you've been waiting for, he's here. Yes, these are dark times, but the Messiah has come, our Savior, the one we truly need. Not deliverance from political or religious oppression, but we need Jesus, our true Savior. Simeon, he had a joyful response, a response of joyful surrender to the Lord, praising God for fulfilling his promise, holding salvation in his arms, knowing now he could depart in peace. Mary and Joseph, they marvel at what Simeon said. Jesus wasn't just the savior of Israel, he was the savior of the world. And there, were also, there was also Anna. Anna responded with gratitude and evangelism. She couldn't help but proclaim and tell others about him. And then there were others, verse 38, who had been waiting, hoping, expecting this redemption. Even despite the current political and religious climate, they hadn't lost hope. And when Simeon, Mary, Joseph, and Anna, when they encountered Jesus, they couldn't stay neutral or indifferent. You see, they saw in Jesus their wildest hopes fulfilled because God was breaking into this world against our will, you could say, in order to save us. Give us a salvation we desperately needed. This morning, what is your response to this? How is this hitting you this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard this story many times. Even in your life, you've probably attended many Christmas Eve services, lessons and carol services, or maybe you just go to church during this time of year and you hear the message and it kind of just washes over you, it goes in one ear and out the other. You've heard it so much and it's easy for it not to affect you. And given our political and social climate, it's easy for this to feel far off almost that there's this Savior who has come and that he's going to come again. He's going to take all those who are his home with him. And it's hard for us in this time to forget the truth that we are still waiting, we are still hoping, we are still expecting him to come again and to fulfill his promise finally and fully, that he will come and redeem his people, take us home to be with him. John 14, 3, he said this, Jesus said this, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Maybe you feel that numbness to this message this morning. I can relate. As a pastor, I preach it, I, I speak it, I talk about it. This time of year, I'm, I'm saying it yet again, right? And we're trying to, Think about ways in which to say it. And I want it to be alive. I want it to be afresh. I want to taste it anew in my own life. And maybe you're sitting there this morning going, yes, that's what I want in my own life. And we say that because there's an ache that says, I need this. I need to taste it anew. Taste anew the one who is dedicated for me 
so that I could have life. So what do I do? Three things. Look at this Christ. Look at this Jesus. Contemplate who he is and his dedication for you. And then ask. Ask the Lord to refresh it anew in your life and in your heart. To taste it afresh of who he is and what he did for you. But maybe you're someone sitting here this morning and you're not sure you really believe this stuff. Maybe it seems a bit like a TV show. You're watching it and it looks as if it's reality, but really you know it's not reality. These are just characters playing a role. Seems a bit like a fairy tale maybe, maybe in like a myth. This morning, it can be easy to dismiss Jesus. Frankly, because we as followers don't always live out the best examples. So it makes it hard to believe. But maybe you want to say, well, he's just a good guy, and you want to leave it at that. But like that C.S. Lewis quote said, he does not leave that open to us because of what he said. He won't do it, actually, and take that as love. He'll actually stand in your way because he loves you so much because of it's a life and death matter. So he's going to stand in your way and he's going to say to you, like he said to Peter and to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he won't let you wiggle out of it. Just like C.S. Lewis said, he hasn't left that open to us. Right? He's either Lord or he's a crazy man. But he can't be a good man. Think about this. Who else do you know that after offending them time and time again for no good reason would then come and give his or her life for you so you could be rescued and then brought into their family? Imagine hurting someone again and again when they've done nothing wrong to you. You're like the bully in their life and you keep punishing them for no good reason. And then imagine that person comes to you at your most guilty and most homeless moment in your life, your lowest moment, and they give their life for you so that you can not only go free, but then have everything restored, be a part of their family, and go free. Do you know a love like this? We have seen and we know of sacrificial love. We see examples of it in our world, don't we? We have people showing sacrificial love and those are great pictures. Those are good pictures. But yet no one has loved like Jesus has loved because only he is that spotless, perfect sacrifice who is God in the flesh. Any other example, while good, it falls short because it can't save us from our spiritual need of forgiveness. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. He came down and he took on a body and becoming like us. His very creation, who wanted nothing to do with him, he came down and he became like us in order to save us from the destruction that you and I, we were clueless about. Didn't have a clue. And he came and saved us. I think I understand a little bit more this morning their joy and excitement that you see in this passage. They had been waiting they knew he was their only hope for their true need, their true need to be forgiven of their sins in order to have eternal life.
And so the question is, really this morning, do you understand your true need? Do you understand your true need? What is your response going to be to Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just see an incredible dedication of your son in this passage. We can't understand the humiliation he went through, the submission, the lowering of himself. It's on a level that is hard to comprehend. But Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to see this and to taste it afresh, taste it anew of what your son has done for us so that we could have life. His dedication so that we could live devoted lives for you through faith in him. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for doing the Father's will. Thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.